Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rich Hips, the Executive Director of Technology Commercialization at the University of Minnesota. The technology commercialization team at the university is responsible for all facets of technology transfer, including IP protection, marketing, licensing, and startups through the Venture Center. In addition, Rick's team partners with the UMN Foundation on the university's corporate engagement initiatives. Rick also serves on the Launch MN Advisory Board for the state of Minnesota. Rick joined the university in 2008 after 20 years of software industry experience, including roles in software engineering, technology strategy, and executive management with Minnesota and California software companies. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much again, Rick, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Rick, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Minneapolis and at the University of Minnesota? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always an interesting question because I don't think anybody goes to uh, to school for uh, tech transfer. But, uh, you know, after I got my, my comp science math degrees, I moved to, to Minneapolis in, in the late 80s or Minneapolis-St. Paul in the late 80s to get into the computing industry. Minneapolis was kind of the, the hub for supercomputers and, and mainframes and that type of thing. And But about a year later, quickly pivoted to the software industry as that industry sort of collapsed. And, uh, and our small software team within this large company was purchased by a California startup. And so I had kind of a 15 to 20 year ride in, in the kind of the whole startup thing from this really tiny team through going public and having three ownership changes by California-based companies. And, and so after that rat race of, you know, kind of running the Minneapolis branch of uh, California companies and flying around the world and, you know, starting a family and everything, I just wanted something different. And so I announced I was leaving. Uh, one of my team members was happened to be in the same scout troop as the guy that was hired to reform the University of Minnesota Tech Transfer Office. And, and so he was looking for somebody to help kind of rebuild the office and build a software branch of the office. And, and so, so yeah, I said, this is much different than the other three job opportunities, but I jumped at it and I've really never looked back and just been a, a great, uh, great ride. I think I, I just turned 14 years, which is amazing. I never thought I'd be here for 14 years, but it's gone, gone really well. Wow, that is an amazing journey. And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with technology commercialization at the university, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think like a lot of your, your uh, I'll call it standard tech transfer offices, you know, our job is to facilitate the, the transfer of the technologies and to, to license and get that technology out in the world, you know, either st startup companies or established companies. We're really looking for the 
the the private sector to really do the development of the new products and services and and they you know they want them to benefit the public good i mean it's part of a university foster the uh economic growth which is a big part of what we like to do and you know at the side effect hopefully generate a little revenue to support you know the university's mission and so we're part of the research office of the university uh so maybe just a little bit of background i, I mentioned kind of that we had restructured or rebooted the office and it was just a, a an analysis by actually some regional people and some people at the university that the the office was not uh performing as well as as uh they would like for a large research university that the university of minnesota is and you know it wasn't uh commensurate with the level of of university research and so i know we call it a reboot but basically there was a significant investment in in dollars you know just to to put more budget into the office but also to really fill that office with industry experienced people you know instead of in uh, we have uh, you know certainly people with phd's and academic backgrounds but the industry experience we found being extremely extremely important so you know things like uh you know bringing in you know different salary levels than maybe some of the the academic levels uh looking at the hiring profiles putting together a small incentive pay program. I mean, it's certainly not the same as you'd have in industry, but you know that's not usually something you see in academic uh, in, you know, um, uh, settings. We've got uh, a two-tier kind of case management uh, structure. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I think that was a key thing that we wanted to put in place. But uh, the first step was really to, to focus on researcher relationships, you know, the responsiveness, the building the reputation that when a researcher called, we'd answer the phone, we'd get back to them, we'd respond by email, we'd get our decisions made, put lots and lots of processes in place, got external reviews from some of the best tech transfer offices in the nation. Um, you know, people like Catherine Koo from Stanford and many others came in and, and reviewed and gave us some advice. And we've just been on a continuous improvement journey. I mean, I think... We, we stopped some things that weren't working. Uh, we tried a lot of things and we kept the ones that worked and we stopped some things that weren't working. We're just kind of had that continuous mindset. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we've done with um, advancements, right, in, in tech transfer that, you know, we're very, very proud of and, you know, express licenses for many types of technologies. I mean, we, we took what some other groups were doing and we just really went uh, – uh, really hard at that. And we're, we've got what I believe to be the best express licensing site in tech transfer. We've done a lot of work in sponsored research agreements. We've got um, probably 30 or 40 different tech transfer uh, universities that have adopted our MinIP, our sponsored research agreement structure. Um, we've got uh, some really good startup company infrastructure, which I'll talk about later. And most recently, we've been focused on things like corporate engagement and, and uh, bridge and gap funding. So I think there's a lot of things that we've made beyond just what a standard tech transfer office has, has done. And, and we're very, very proud of it. I think that's a good segue to ask you about um, your technology commercialization team. Yeah, so I, I, I guess I always start out by saying, um, we're large, um, but we're not extra large. <laughs> and and so I know a lot of tech transfer offices, and I I would um, I can imagine the, the struggle and the challenge if you've got a a small um, team of you know some of them five person team, two person teams, or even you know a fifteen person team because there's so much that a tech transfer office does. But I put us in that large category. We're in that thirty to thirty five range. We don't have a forty to fifty person office, so there's many that are larger. But we've got, I believe, a, just an, an excellent team. We've got a executive leadership team that most of which have been with the office 
up to 10 years now. So we've got a lot of veteran experience. Wall had 20 year careers in industry before they came here. So oh, wow. I mean, it's really uh, a luxury, I guess I would say, to have that, as well as, you know, most of the people, excuse me, all of the people on the team, including myself, started out as individual contributors and kind of moved their way into the leadership. So that's really been a, a, a big benefit, I believe. Um, we've got this two-tier structure I mentioned earlier. We've got a technology strategy group that's researcher-focused. They work on the IP. They're the case managers. They make some of the early stage decisions. And then we've got an outbound team that does the marketing licensing. We call those people technology licensing officers. And so those are our kind of two groups that are handling cases and about seven, eight people each. And we kind of divide them by industries and they're they're sort of matched up on, on each technology. But we have we don't have a cradle to grave as many, many offices talk about. Um, we've got a, a fairly new uh, part of our group uh, working on corporate engagement. We only have a portion of the corporate engagement at the university. We'll talk probably more about that later. But we we are part of corporate engagement, mostly on the research side, because we have those researcher relationships. and We work on the IP portion of that. We've got a small venture center, and I'll talk more about that later. But our venture center really is there, there is a two-person team with some some students, and they're the general contractors that help us drive our 20 startups a year. But Everybody in the office kind of works on, on on startups in some form or fashion. We've got a strong uh, operations and finance team. They're kind of the foundational part. Every tech transfer office requires a lot of uh, finance and operations, and, and our team is great. And then you know we just use a lot of students and interns. The final thing I'll say about the makeup of our team, and this is an, an experiment, something we, we learned from other institutions, is we put in place something we call our Tech Commercialization Fellows Program. And we've had a couple people go through that. We're hiring our third one right now. In fact, they just started at the beginning of January. And what it is, is it's a two-year, possibly three-year commitment. And we like to call it, it's a postdoc opportunity in tech commercialization. So these people tend to come through, they've got the uh, either newly minted PhDs or they're you know making their final uh, steps in their PhD process. And they're not sure if they want to go the academic route or the corporate route. And they just are fascinated with tech commercialization. And let me tell you, it's been a phenomenal program. And I think every office will have a lot of students and interns, but students and interns are great. They don't stay very long and they're only part time. And you can't give them, you know, the the media assignments that are sometimes needed. And the tech comp fellows are at the office, you know, just well, not at the office right now. Yeah, but exactly. At, at the uh, virtual office, just like everybody else, and they participate. And it's really been good for them and good for us. Well, that's a really impressive team, Rick. And I was curious if you could share with us some of the statistics uh, from your team from fiscal year 2021 in terms of li- new licenses, startup companies formed, invention disclosures, things like that. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, first of all, it's it's another strong year. And I know that might sound a little cliche, but I mean, we've had a lot of really strong years. And so, as I say, most of these statistics start out at zero on July 1st, right? And so you, you have to get back to the same level, but we had a you know a record year. We have uh, 230 licenses, 236 to be exact. And we count uh, uh, our our startup agreements, our, our commercial exclusive licenses. And we do a lot of non-exclusive licensing of technologies. And, you know, we use the autumn kind of standard for, for reporting our licenses. Uh, we've, one of the, my favorite uh, statistics is actually our revenue generating agreements. And we have 575 of those. And those are for that given year, any agreement that's brought in, well, at least a dollar, but basically any revenue generating agreements. And that really shows 
the sustained you know success of the office. Our gross revenue is you know seventeen. 17.4 million. We've been running um, probably in the 12 to 20. And, and I'm talking about just core revenue, not the blips that you sometimes see when you either have a large license or a windfall or something like that. I mean, this is just, you know, the steady, really solid, you know, puts us in the, you know, kind of top 10% kind of revenue um, record year for startups. And so we're on a path uh, based on the university's mission to get us to 25 by 2025. So we got a little work to do, but Again, each year we start out at zero, and we're trying to get 21 this year to, to beat our record last year of 20. Um, had 332 disclosures. We've been running in the 350 to 400 range, a little bit down, but not too too far down. And that's a little bit of the COVID uh, yeah, model. Absolutely. And then we had 181 issued patents, which puts us in the top 20. And so if you look at just overall, we've got a lot of I would call top 10 rankings if you look at our U.S. public institutions, which are our best compares. We don't try to compare against all the privates, but against public universities, we're in the top five for a lot of categories, but in the top 10 from startups and inventions and patents and revenues and licenses. So we're really uh, proud of our, our uh, metrics. And uh, each year we're very, very metric driven. And that's maybe a little bit of that uh, industry background of our, our team. We're very metric driven and you know some of the metrics even have some uh, incentive associated with them. So it's really, I think we're uh, good, good results. You wouldn't do any of those good results so if you weren't at a good university. And so I do, we don't want to take credit for the research because we have a great research set of researchers that we're working with. Here. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely shows. And I want to turn back and talk some more about startups and um, I found it interesting when I was doing my research for the podcast, I, I saw on your website, um, it said that the University of Minnesota is the largest producer of high-tech startups in the state. And really very impressively, your startups have a 75% survival rate, which is due in part to your venture center. So I was wondering if you could tell us, number one, more about the venture center and what it does to help these startups survive. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a it's a great question, and again, we're extremely proud of of our our venture center. I mean, first of all, we um, you know I, I mentioned earlier we kind of did the the reboot in two thousand seven two thousand eight timeframe, and we had a venture center at that timeframe, and we started with a model that um, was pretty typical at a lot of universities where you have bring in four to five ent entrepreneurs and residents. Um, you have them look at all your startups, you, you grill the startups and you pick the, the winners, which by the way, is really hard to do. Nobody yeah. can pick the winners. No. And we really, um, over the years said, gee, we're only turning out three or four or five startups a year. What are some of these more innovative universities doing that are getting the 15 to 20 startups a year? And we've really pivoted over the years to, to expand our support. And it's not just about quantity over quality, but you can actually have both. And, you know, I think one of the indicators is that number that you pointed out, that 75% survival rate. Now, we don't have 75% unicorns or rock stars or the next, uh, you know, in our case, Medtronic or 3M that's going to, to spout out, but we believe that having a good foundation and really encouraging it just breeds more startups. And so, I mentioned earlier, kind of our whole office has a role in the startups, but we have a venture center and it's part of our office, a venture center that has two full-time people and a lot of MBA students. And we're looking to expand it a little bit. And um, it's really um, supported by what we call three pillars of, of startup support. And so 
Um, the first one is our business advisory group. It's a phenomenal organization we put in place. We went away from what's what I called earlier that standard entrepreneur in residence model because we didn't have the right startups for the entrepreneurs when we needed them. We didn't have the right entrepreneurs for the startups. And so we went to a volunteer only group and basically they get a view of our startup pipeline uh, at six meetings a year. And this group has grown to 300 people. And so it's a, a set of, you know, uh, serial entrepreneurs, uh, retired um, executives from, from some of the corporates um, you know, some of the investor types, and they all bring their friends, and pretty soon you have a pretty diverse group, and we have to cover so many industries in our tech transfer office, and this business advisory group is really what we use for the source of advice, um, board members, oftentimes the startup CEOs. Um, Pre-COVID, I called it our LinkedIn Live, and by that I mean <laughs> when we have some opportunities or what we're looking for something, it might be the people that are at the meeting or it might be the people that are in their networks. So we really get this, you know, really large network effect by having this business advisory group. So that's been huge. And we've got numerous of our startups now that have members, you know, the startup CEOs that were members of our business advisory group. The second is uh, our discovery launch pad and our discovery launch pad is really that coaching. We call it an incubator. Uh, we don't take, you know, additional equity or any charge or any fees, but any University of Minnesota startup from, you know, a year before they launch to a couple of years after they launch can use the services of the Discovery Launchpad. And it's an incubator, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not a cohort model. We actually do customized, you know, this kind of a, a buffet. We have got a, all these different options and, and types of advice we give. Some of them need financial help. Some of them need help with their pitch. Some of them need help with their, you know, product development strategies. You know, we customize that. We do have some paid advisors in that group, so it does complement our venture center. And their Discovery Launchpad has a small set of paid advisors. And then the third is our Discovery Capital Program, and that's where the university, in addition to you know getting some of the equity as part of the original license, we can add additional um, uh, capital, and we do that in a form of of matching. So we're never the lead investors, but we can participate and we use a, an independent advisory board to help us invest that money. And we're talking a fairly small amount, but we can invest in three different tranches in an individual company for a total of about a million dollars. And then we invest up to a couple, two to three million a year across our portfolio. So it's, it's that discovery capital has really been a, a way to leverage the university's money to attract other types of capital. So I think that's a good segue, Rick, with talking about the discovery capital. Um, what other funding opportunities are available for startups there out of the university? Yeah, I think it's it's a you know certainly an interesting environment. Um, we're certainly not on the east or west coast, and so any of the Midwest universities you've talked to, you probably have gotten similar answers. But we believe the discovery capital funding is certainly a uh, a, a pillar of what we want to do. And, and part of the um, attraction for us is we have a set of 20 to 25 advisors on our Discovery Capital board that are helping us make decisions. And the not so hidden agenda is they can also invest in our startups. That's not the purpose of their participation in Discovery Capital, but it's allowed us to get in front of some really uh, talented people, and and they also have good investor networks. Um, but we've got um, a really growing 
I would call it a, a strong uh, Minnesota and specifically Minnesota's Minneapolis St. Paul ecosystem and in, in investment. Um, there's there's a couple different angel groups that are doing a fair amount of investment. There's several new funds that have been put in place. Uh, the state is really trying to do a lot of work, but we've been involved in co-hosting a lot of investor events. Uh, we have one that we call the Minnesota Ventures. Um, investment event that happens quarterly. Our next one is this Friday. Um, another is is semi annually. We call it the walleye tank, not the shark tank. The walleye <laughs> walleye, tank. That's hilarious. Yes, that's great. Yes. We have an ice fishing edition in December. <laughs> awesome. So it's it's good stuff. But uh, we they're they really the the key is co hosting. So as much as we like everybody to invest in the University of Minnesota startups, it's really about deal flow. And um, so if you look at uh, um, Minnesota Cup is a huge statewide um, startup competition. If you look at our partnership with Mayo, Mayo Ventures has a lot of startups. There are a lot of uh, growing startups in the, in the Twin Cities in the state of Minnesota. And if you can provide deal flow, they don't all have to be our deals. It's kind of that rising tide lifts all boats. Um, the state of Minnesota has made some really good progress with Launch Minnesota. I'm on the advisory board for Launch Minnesota. Um, the university helps provide some services for Launch Minnesota, education and otherwise. And it's really been a good way to convene and, and knit the ecosystem. And their focus is on bringing capital. So that's back to the capital question. You know, if we can all work together, I think we get a lot more capital in front. Final thing I'd say is even in, you know, beyond the state of Minnesota, the Midwest has been doing a, a good job. There are several different organizations, uh, in, you know, some in Chicago, some in, in uh, Madison and Milwaukee, and they're, they're not focused on just their deals. They're focused on attracting attention from this coast. And I have to say, you know, there's great technologies. There's a good density of, of, of great ideas and, and high tech. And they're not as inflated as on the valuations as the uh, ones that you'll find in, in California and, and Boston. So, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of good activity. We're not the coast. We don't have all the VC money, but uh, we're definitely trending in the right direction. Well, switching gears, Rick, I, I wanted to ask you about external partners, whether they're corporate partners or the government and the role they play there in tech transfer. So I was hoping you could give us some examples of, of some relationship with some external partners. Yeah, I mean, if, if you ask me, you know, in 2022, how is that? How has tech transfer changed from, you know, 2015 to 2022? I would say it's a lot on on the corporate and and kind of government relations and and uh, really looking at at how we can engage with the the corporate partners. Um, it's it's something that we've done a little bit in our office, but certainly with our partners in the in the university foundation. And to be honest, we've got a, a president. If you've not met President Gable, who's just really on fire about you know engaging in corporates and really having an impact with the the university having a more of an impact, not just inside and academically, but more of an impact uh, with our corporate partners. And so that's been huge. Uh, we've got some really good relationships with you know some of the. Uh, firms that have large presence in the in the Twin Cities or in the state of Minnesota, we've got the 3Ms and the Cargills and and Boston Scientific and such. But we've also had some long relationships with some companies, you know, outside the Twin Cities. And so, you know, one that uh, kind of was the precursor to what I talked about earlier with this MinIP research agreement was called Dow Chemical, um, and we had this relationship with them where they 
they pledged uh, a certain amount of research funding, but we created a relationship with them that allowed them to have a choice on how the research would happen and how the intellectual property would happen and how the licensing would happen. It really built a, a strong trust relationship, and that kind of led back in the 2011-2012 timeframe to us forming this thing called MinIP, or Minnesota Innovation Partnerships. And that's parlayed into great relationships with Boston Scientific and Medtronic and others. A real good, interesting story, and it's you know it's on our, our website that we've uh, touted uh, publicly, is, is our relationship with Cisco. And literally in February of last year, Cisco contacted us after we had put together a website that was called uh, Corporate Engagement, and they said, gee, we'd like to talk to you about research partnerships. We should have a better relationship with you. We know a few of your researchers. Wow. And they actually contacted us through the website, and about 10 days later, we were talking in agreement. I mean, it was just from zero to not 60. And um, they asked for proposals. We uh, cultivated uh, with our um, various different colleges. It wasn't just one of our, our colleges to get like 50 or 60 proposals. And they funded 10 of them. And by June, money had already changed hands and the researchers were off researching. So from February to June, we had everything done. And it was just an amazing. And part of it was we moved quickly. Part of it was we already had the structure in place that we had been honing for, you know, eight to 10 years. And it was just, it was great. And part of it is, you know, the the companies see, you know, a lot of the great basic science and the researchers are seeing that they're solving real company problems. And and I, I just think that that's the, the wave of, of what we need to do. I think it's just really been a, a, a great, um, great example, Cisco being one of them. We've got some other ones brewing that if you have the right attitude and the right, you know, matchmaking capabilities. I mean, that's really, really what we're, we're doing. And another a final part of what I'll, I'll talk about is, is even in the philanthropic side with some of these, these organizations, whether they be things like the, the Gates Foundation or the Kaiser, you know, there's all these different, you know, foundations that put lots of monies. I mean, the university research and those philanthropic foundations go hand in hand. I mean, I don't, you know, you can certainly look at some of the disease based foundations or, or many of these, um, wealth-based family foundations, you know, research at the university is really a great opportunity. And so we've got a, a whole team of connectors that are part of our university foundation that we work with and and they play matchmaker basically to bring those in. And certainly if there are research that turns into ideas, that turn into inventions, that turn into patents, that runs through our office as well. So that's a, another change that's really been, been a, a positive change for us. That's amazing. And that's awesome. And, and I want to move into the, what my guests find is the, the fun part of the podcast, which is, is asking about technology commercialization's biggest success stories in terms of successful technologies or startups. If you could share some of those with us. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where to start. There's a lot of them. So it's, it's interesting. So that the old history, and, and if you even look at the University of Minnesota, um, it's, it's pretty dated in some of the examples. So we've been trying to change that a little bit, but historically, I mean, the university is where Medtronic was born, so the pacemaker, um, open heart surgery was first done at the University of Minnesota back in the 60s. But, you know, things like the, the seatbelt or the black box recorder, a lot of people don't know those were also, you know, invented here. But kind of more recently, there was, and these are, are things that actually we worked with in, in our office, there was a significant AIDS drug called Zyogen, um, the Talon's. Uh, gene editing technology. A lot of people have heard of CRISPR-Cas. Talons is another methodology, and that was uh, created here at the university. And 
Um, you know, we like to say who hasn't heard of apples. I mean, we've got Honeycrisp apples. Yeah, that, uh, Honeycrisp is a big one. That I think was part of the Autumn Better World project as well. It, it certainly was. It was one, one of our examples for the Autumn Better World project. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's well known. But I, I think a lot of the technologies, not just at the University of Minnesota, but everywhere, are really going the startup route. And a lot of it is because they're game changers. And really, the, the best way to get them to market is to, you know, to build a startup, to get them invested in, and then oftentimes they're acquired. Um, so I'm just going to run through, uh, uh, I think I've got five or six examples here that are a couple of biotech ones and a couple of clean tech and, and a couple of edutech. And part of it's the interesting technology, part of it's the diversity, and part of it is they're real, really all Minnesota-based. And that's, to me, a, 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 a evidence that the University of Minnesota is having an impact from an economic development standpoint. Uh, so the first one is one that actually just went um, public in June of 2021, 20, uh, and that was Miro Matrix. And, and Miro Matrix is based on university research and developing uh, bioengineered organs. Uh, so you see a lot of that kind of thing in the news. These are bioengineered, uh, focusing on livers and kidneys uh, for human transplant, but they're using your own cells. And so they do this technology that decellularizes and recellularizes, it's hard for me to say, your own cells. And, uh, you know, they, like I said, they just went public. Um, they're, you know, early stage on the clinical trials, uh, but they just opened another facility. Uh, well, they're opening one this month, which is their second or third facility in Minnesota. And it's just been a great story. Um, still a long way to go. I mean, human transplant of human organs has uh, got lots of regulatory and, and testing, but really making great progress. And we're really excited to see the company trajectory of Miromatrix. A second one in the biotech space is Vascudine, and, and that company makes engineered uh, tissue kind of tube technology and, and uh, regenerative uh, biomaterials, so 100% biological. Uh, so, in a, uh, you know, kind of the best example we always use with Vascudine, it's a fairly young company, is that um, they can engineer and, and in, um, uh, insert heart valves that grow. So if you have, you know, infants born with heart defects, you know, they often go through several different you know, valve surgeries and, you know, this, this technology, if proven, it's doing animal studies right now, but if proven, will will allow uh, Im implanting, you know, heart valves that grow. So those are a couple of, of biotech examples. Um, moving to clean tech or, or engineering technologies, we've got a really exciting company called Nyron Magnetics. Again, another Minnesota company. They just raised 21 million, uh, building a, a production facility here, but they make what they call a clean earth magnet. So there's, you know, they have new materials and, and processes to to fab fabricate permanent magnets. So it eliminates that need for rare earth elements. And most of those, by the way, happen to be in China, if you follow that that space. And so these would be used in, you know, electric drivetrains and motors, electric motors. Uh, those are the types of magnets that we're looking at. And like I said, really a, a rocket ship and a great story. Another one is, is Claros Technologies and a very young company. I think it's three years old now, but they have a kind of compound-based nanotechnology, um, but it's used for things like water filtering. Um, they pivoted during COVID to make some uh, PPE masks. Um, and then they've got, you know, what they call functional textiles. So some really interesting technology there, Minnesota-based. They just closed a, a small A round, but they're off and running. And, and again, another exciting kind of clean tech, uh, engineering-based uh, technology. And then the final, which is, I, I think, we, we may be leading uh, in, in uh, edutech startups. Uh, edutech startups are ones that 
you know, are focused on, you know, either the K through 12 or even the higher education sector. And, and a couple that have been very successful for us. One is a company called VidGrew, and it's now called Flipgrid uh, Technology, which is a platform for uh, video-based dialogues uh, in education um, and, you know, other spaces, but they've been used pretty heavily and they kind of caught on in the education space. And they were purchased uh, by this uh, small company called Microsoft uh, in 2018. So if you look at uh, Microsoft has a division now or a subsidiary called Flipgrid, that's uh, that was based on Minnesota and they've, they've maintained their Minnesota offices. So it's a an economic development uh, story for Minneapolis as well. And then the final example is FastBridge, and this is an interesting one. It's an automated uh, assessment tool for K through 12. All the K through 12, you take your annual tests and, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever, in, in the various different subjects. And it's they've really um, taken over that world and, and changed the way it's done using adaptive computer-based technologies and, and no more uh, pencil and paper tests. But um, they basically bootstrapped, no investments, no fundraise, had huge growth. They had almost 200 employees, and then they were uh, acquired in June of 2019 by a California-based education company, and they, they maintain a strong presence. So, I mean, these are, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited about them. They're, they're all really good stories, and it really shows the diversity as well. Yeah, that's some incredible diversity and some amazing startups that have, have come out. And I wanted to ask you, Rick, you know, that you've had tremendous success, but I'm also curious to know what you think two of the biggest challenges are in tech transfer. Yeah, I mean, I I, I probably could could say hiring because hiring is challenging yes. everywhere, but that's not just unique to tech transfer. No. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the expansion of scope has, has really been a, a, a challenge and, and and it's not unique to uh, to our office. And, you know, there's several others. In fact, I think University of Michigan just recently reorganized their office to expand the scope and many others are doing that as well. And uh, for us, it's meant, you know, more involvement in corporate engagement, um, more involvement in things like uh, we've got an innovation district that's coming, uh, you know, it's on the radar screen for the next uh, several years. Um, these are things that you don't, uh, wake up in the morning thinking about in tech transfer. They're not the core blocking and tackling of filing patents and and uh, doing license agreements. So it's really expanded. I think it's a good expansion, but it's very, very challenging and it's a different mindset. Um, and then the second one, I, I guess for us, and maybe it's for other people as well, is we've had just sustained growth since literally 2010. And I would say we're kind of like victims of our success, right? It's a, it's that high activity. I mean, it's great that we're getting new research and the research dollars are going up and we're getting new cases and inventions and disclosures and patents. But we also have lots of active cases. And so we've got, you know, a, a big backlog of active cases and patents. Plus, we've got lots of active licenses and startups. And we love that fact that we have licenses and active startups. But you know, that generates a high degree of activity. So I would say our expanded scope and our high activity is really what we see are the, the two biggest challenges. So Rick, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this is a topic that's being talked about in tech transfer offices actually all around the world. Um, I know technology commercialization has some programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about those. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something that, uh, you know, is, is near and dear to our hearts. I mean, we really take this extremely seriously. I mean, I think there's a lot of organizations that just like to check that box and say we're doing something just so that they can check that box. But uh, I mean, first of all, I, I think that the tech transfer industry, if you want to call it that, is really 
generated a lot of buzz and a lot of discussions around this. And people are just sharing information. We participate in all the forums. We lead some, we learn from some, we share, because there's really no monopoly on good ideas. And so I think it's it's just a lot of really good energy um, in you know, Autumn and other forums that that are really kind of looking at this problem. But, you know, just like a lot of things, we start with data. So we've looked at, you know, the demographics uh, in particular. We've got a, a a great person in our office that's really data driven and passionate about this. And she's she's really dug in and looked at the demographics. So if you look at researchers by college and then you look at the inventions by college and if, you know, for example, female, if 20% of your researchers are female, but 10% of your inventors are female, then that's a gap, right? Absolutely. So we've been trying to work with our, our college leadership, and it's not that we get involved in the hiring process. I mean, once in a while, there'll be a faculty that wants to talk to the tech transfer office, but we're just trying to encourage that, uh, you know, we're here to help, we're here to support, and we really want to see those inventions. So that's the data-centric part of it. And then we also... Um, we didn't start a program that's going to like take over or change the university. We actually looked at what was already going on in the university. And there's things like an annual women's innovators conference. And there's, you know, various different other events that are going on already in our office of diversity and inclusion. I mean, we've embraced what they're doing and they're part of our work group now. So not only do they have their own initiatives, they've joined our initiative. And so that's, that's really helped a lot. And then when, within our office, we've got this working group, we call it our diversity, equity, inclusion working group. And our focus is really on building an ecosystem, a diverse ecosystem for our innovators. So we're looking at, you know, what's the makeup of our office? And by the way, we're pretty diverse. We could always be more diverse, but we're, we're pretty strong on the diversity front and just our employment. But our programming, I mean, when we do programming, are we doing programming that's just attracting the same kind of standard inventors? Who are our examples? in our stories and our videos or our panels. We have panels all the time. And if you have a panel of, dare I say, you know, three middle-aged white males on the panel, I mean, what kind of message are you sending, right? So we're really focusing on kind of, you know, I just want to call it optics because that's really brushing it off. I mean, it's, it's sincere. We're looking at really showing good examples. And the final thing that we've done, I mentioned earlier, this business advisory group, and then, you know, it's a network of networks. Well, if everybody's net that's in the network is white and male, then their networks are probably white and male and their networks are probably, you know, so it, it just kind of perpetuates. So we've really been focusing on our business advisory group because it's such a pillar of how our office operates. We want that to be very diverse. So we've actually even set some goals of we have to increase by 50 percent, you know, the number of you know women or the number of, of people of color. And that's it, really been a, an active, active focus, because, again, if we can get a group of mentors that's more representative, you know, the inventors themselves who are working with those mentors will feel more diversity and inclusion. So yeah, we're, it's a work in progress and it's a multi, multi-year effort, but you got to start and you got to measure. Absolutely. No, it sounds like you have some great uh, programs and initiatives underway. So um, looking forward to learn more and, and hear more going forward. So Rick, I want to switch gears again and ask you what organizations that you and your team are involved in and what value you think they add. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's uh 
certainly a lot of, of acronym laden uh, exactly uh, right um, you know a classic autumn I think we, we do a lot with with autumn and and uh, have participated quite a bit in, in autumn um, UIDP the university industry uh, demonstration partnership we've been getting more and more involved in that we believe that's not only part of our tech transfer but part of our corporate engagement that I mentioned earlier uh, the licensing executive society I mean we've we, and they've actually just uh, if, if you've noticed they started a new member type this year, which is really nice for tech transfer offices, and it's kind of that IP-centric thing that, you know, I think for $2,000, you can have like 15 people join, and it's really kind of a nice, so we're going to see if we can get a little bit more exposure there. We like the Licensing Executive Society because it does have more of an industry focus, um, but there's other organizations that are kind of in that corporate areas, things like NACRO, which is uh, corporate relations officers. You know, we partner with the foundation here at the university and we, we have a, a membership in, in that organization. And then recently, because we've been dabbling, kind of getting involved in our innovation district or research park, we've been uh, um, going to a few of the events uh, by AURP, which is, is also insightful. And so as we expand beyond tech transfer, which is kind of our licensing, which is the autumns and the LES, we're kind of branching into those other organizations. But I would say the biggest benefit for all those, um, you know, I, I don't want to sound uh, uh, snobbish or anything, but it's kind of you want to be talking to those top 10 to 20 percent of, of those offices who are the leaders, um, because those are the people that we can trade information with. And it's, you know, we're a large university, we're a large office, we live in a large metro we don't want to be comparing ourselves to a small university and a small metro and a, and a small area, not because they're doing bad work, but because we can't learn as much for them. So that, that peer, you know, the peer interactions are, have really been probably the biggest benefit of all. Rick, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? Great question. Is it kind of like the genie in the, the bottle kind of give, get three wishes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, um, we just have a fantastic team. So the first wish would be that we could keep the exact same team forever. Um, I know that's not possible, but uh, it really, it's really been both both fun and just rewarding just to see how great, you know, the, the a well-functioning team, but also just a, a great set of individuals who really all care and, and share the vision. Uh, that would probably be my first one. Uh, I've kind of hinted at a couple times the innovation district. So maybe my second one would be instead of taking 10 to 15 years, which is kind of, it, it takes a long time. I understand that. You I mean, you look at any of them that were built from uh, Kendall Square to Research Triangle Park to any of those, they didn't happen overnight. But if we could get that 15 year plan done in two years, that would be awesome. Um, I might not be around in 15 years for the, uh, for the, for the, by the time it gets done. Um, I don't know. Maybe the third one would be that uh, all our startup and, and corporate licensing deals could be done online with no negotiation. That's quite a wish. Good luck getting that one. Yeah, we do our uh, our non-exclusive licensing. One of the, the best things when we put that express licensing in place many, many years ago, I remember the guy that helped work on it. He said, all you have to do is take away their pen and just put the I accept button on and you won't get any negotiation. So I don't think that's ever going to happen, like you said, but it, it, it's a wish. Yeah, exactly. Try and get like the Apple license. Click just, you know, accept to move on. It'd be nice, yes. but yeah, realistically, not likely to happen. But good luck trying, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? 
Yeah, sure. They can uh, send me an email. They can certainly find me on the University of, of Minnesota's website, but the email is r-h-u-e-b-s-c-h at umn.edu. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Rick. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.